first section deals with the measurement of the temple. So let's read verses 1 and 2. And there was given unto me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now notice in verse 1 we see the message of the angel and then the measurement of the temple in verse number 2. Now remember, up until this time, John has been a spectator. He's been looking at all of this from afar. God is showing him things that that were to happen, but now he becomes a participant. You talk about excitement in the ministry, I mean uh, this would have this would have been exciting. He tells him to take a reed, which is a measuring rod, and uh, tells him to measure the temple and the altar. And interesting, uh, interestingly enough, he says, and, and those that worship, the, in other words, measure the worshipers. I, I'm not certain what all of that means, uh, but, uh, but he wants a measurement taken of the temple and all of the people that are therein. Whenever I read this, it's as, it's as though God is surveying his property before taking final possession. It so happens that uh, when I graduated from high school, well, my first job really was driving one of those ice cream trucks where you rang the bell, but that didn't last very long. And uh, uh, one day, uh, one day I got a call from my drafting teacher, and uh, one of the few things I excelled at in in school was was drafting. And in fact, my final year, I was a I was a student teacher. Uh, in the drafting class, and uh, Mr. Chastain, my drafting teacher, for whatever reason, took a liking to me, and he found out that the surveyor's office there uh, uh, in Greene County, that they were looking for a hired hand, and so they contacted me, and I went to work for the Greene County surveyor's office, and... uh, so uh started out drafting, but immediately got over into the actual surveying itself and then went to work for the state highway department. So, you know, I know a little something about surveying, naturally. Uh, and, uh, and, and as you know, if you bought or sold property, that it's very important to get a good survey uh, of the property. Uh, otherwise, you can end up getting in a lot of trouble and end up in lawsuits and a great big mess. But uh, when I read this, it's like God is saying, I'm measuring what I'm about to take possession of and what have you. And uh, interestingly enough here, he says that speaks about the times of the Gentiles in several places in the Bible. And it's obvious from what he says here in verse number 2 about the outer court being given unto the Gentiles. Now remember, the times of the Gentiles started when Judah, that was the two southern tribes of Israel, when they were taken into captivity. That was about 586, if I remember right, about 586 B.C. The ten northern tribes had gone into captivity in 722 B.C. 
And after the two southern tribes had gone into captivity, the times of the Gentiles started. Now, the times of the Gentiles has to do with that period of time on earth where the Gentiles would be the controlling power among the nations. And it's been that way ever since. And it will continue to be that way. In other words, the Jews are not going to take possession of the earth. They're not going to control things. But rather the Gentiles are going to control things up until finally the Lord sets up His millennial kingdom on earth. And in that day, of course, he will rule and he will reign, and there will be no power among the Gentiles in that day. But during the tribulation period, the Antichrist takes possession of the temple. And in fact, turn over to Daniel chapter number 7 for just a moment. Daniel chapter 7 And let's read in verse number 23, and I don't have time to go into a detailed explanation of this chapter, but it's very obvious it's talking about what John is talking about. Verse 23, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom. Now, you oftentimes hear preachers talk about the revived Roman Empire. And this is what he's talking about. He's talking about that. Uh, that uh, alliance of nations that come to power uh, during the last times, and it made up of ten nations, and it says the ten, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And that is referred to uh, in, in other places also. After the Antichrist gains control of the ten nations, uh, all of a sudden, three of those nations uh, are, are eliminated, as it were. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of times. What is that? Three and a half, Right? So that's three and a half years or 42 months. That's the last half of the tribulation period. And that's what we're going to see over here in chapter number 11. Now, when Jesus comes, he's going to overthrow the Antichrist and reclaim his property. Look back at Daniel again, this time in verse 26. But the judgment shall sit... And they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Wow. Hey. See, now you've read the last chapter. You know how it's going to end. As awful, as terrible, as difficult as it is in this world right now, uh, it's going to end okay. It's going to be all right. Because you are going to rule and reign on this same earth 
with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. So this is the message of the angel. Now let's go back to verse 2 of Revelation chapter 11. And notice here as he measures the temple. Now, in order to, in order to, you know, get a firm grip on this, we need to remember that there have been three temples. The first was built by Solomon. Remember, David wanted to build the temple. I've got a sermon entitled, When God Says No. When God Says No. David asked to build the temple. His heart was in it. In fact, God told him, you know, David, that's all right. I know it's in your heart. Isn't that a wonderful thought in and of itself? That a lot of times you can't do the things that you would like to do, the things you would be willing to do for the Lord. You can't do those things. But if it's in your heart, God knows that. And God's going to bless you accordingly. And he said, David, you've been a man of war. You shed blood. And he said, I'm not going to be able to use you, but I'm going to use Solomon. And he used David in a different way. David provided the pattern. David provided the supplies. And Solomon, of course, erected the temple. Well, as as you probably know, it was destroyed in 583 by Nebuchadnezzar. And so the first temple was destroyed. The second temple was built by Zerubbabel. And and the book and the study of Ezra and Nehemiah is so very important. And so Zerubbabel and his workers uh, built the, the, the second temple. And uh, in, uh, in 168 B.C., uh, Antiochus Epiphanes destroyed the second temple. And then there was the third temple built by Herod. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. by Titus. This is the temple that Jesus made reference to uh, in his warning to the Jews while he was here upon the earth. And so in 70 A.D., Titus, and, and that, that's an interesting story uh, in itself, the great number of people that he murdered and those that were taken into captivity. We're talking about more than a million people, and he destroyed the temple. Now, they're going to be, there's going to be, you see, there's no temple at the present time, but there will be. In fact, there's going to be two temples. There's going to be a temple that's going to be constructed by the Jews, a temple evidently, you know, at the very beginning or or near the beginning uh, of the tribulation period. The Jews are going to build a temple. Most believe that it'll be where the mosque of Omar is, the Muslim mosque there in the Holy Land. They think that's where it's going to be. And, and by the way, that could happen. There's a lot of research being done on this and being done on this. And that could happen a whole lot faster than what you think. In, in, in fact, there's a lot of preparations being made, even as I speak, for that temple. And so that temple is going to be built and exist during the tribulation period. And the Antichrist is going to remember at the beginning he makes this agreement, enters into a covenant with the Jews, but he breaks that covenant after three and a half years and has the audacity to take up residence in that temple. That's during the tribulation. Sets himself up as God. We'll talk about more about that later on in our study of Revelation. 
But he sets himself up as God in the temple and insists that people worship him as God. Well, then the last temple, of course, is the temple that the Lord is going to build. And and that's what he's talking about here. Whenever during the Lord's millennial reign, this is described, by the way, in Ezekiel chapter 40, if you want to make a little note out there. In Ezekiel chapter 40, you see a description of this of this final temple that's going to be built. And this is what's being described here. Now, John is seeing all of this. John is participating in all of this. But now let's go to verse 3, because in verse 3 down through verse 6, this subject matter has to do with the ministry of the two witnesses. So let's just read through those verses and get the picture of what's going on. He says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand and two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth, And these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in in this manner be killed. And these have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now remember, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy you read this, that God required that there be at least two witnesses to bring charges against a person. Not one, but two. It could not be hearsay. By the way, that's a good principle for you and I to follow today. That's a biblical principle. Somebody comes to you and says, do you know what so-and-so did? And if they don't have two or three witnesses, well, in the first place, it might not even be necessary for you to ever know what so-and-so did. Be careful about listening to that. But if somebody's going to bring a charge against someone, if they don't have two or three witnesses, they have no right to bring a charge against that person. And so when we look at this and God says, these are my two witnesses, well, what are they doing? Well, quite obviously, here we see that this is an indictment against the reign of the Antichrist. And these two witnesses are witnessing, as it were, against him now. A lot of people have spiritualized these verses, saying that this represents law and grace, and or the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that these are the two witnesses. But, you know, it's quite obviously, when you look at the things ascribed to them, these must be real people. I mean, there's no other way to get around it. And, and so, you know, e- even though the Bible does use figures of speech, we've got to be careful that we don't spiritualize something, you know, that was not intended to be spiritualized. And so we're talking about two actual men, witnesses, prophets that's going to be here. Now, the strange thing is, well, I say it's strange, really it shouldn't be. But it's strange in light of the fact that so many people think they've got it all figured out who this is, that God does not identify these two prophets. He just calls them my two witnesses and says nothing about who they are. 
Now, if we go back to the Old Testament and read in the book of Malachi, it does seem that probably one is Elijah. The other one, people will tell you, the other witness will be Enoch or Moses. And they base that on the fact that Enoch was caught up into heaven without dying and he, he's got to die. And so, you know, he's going to come back here and be one of those witnesses and he's going to be killed. And, of course, the, the reasoning behind Moses, of course, because he was the giver of the law and he's representing the law. But, you know, all of that sounds good and it's all interesting and it might make a nice little sermon outline and might, uh, you know, it might entertain a lot of people. But we don't know that. And, And so let's not make something out of nothing. Here's what we do know. We don't know their names, but we know, according to verse 3 and 4, they are prophets. Now, what is a prophet? Well, a prophet is someone that's been called and commissioned by the Lord to speak forth His Word. The prophets receive their message by divine revelation rather than by study. Now, there are some people today that call themselves prophets, but the gift of prophecy has ceased. It was one of the temporary spiritual gifts, you know, during that special time before the completion uh, before the completion of the, of, of the New Testament, and it was essential that the gift of proper, prophecy exist. And the prophet didn't have to do like Brother Kenneth and I. You know, we have to study. We have to take our Bible. And, and by the way, of course, during their ministry, they didn't even have the entire Bible like we do. Uh, but we've got to study. I mean, uh, and, and do a lot of study. But they didn't. They just, when the anointing was upon them and God just told them what to say. And by the way, they did not even always understand what they were saying. In other words, they knew what God was telling them to say. But, you know, if you ask them for an explanation of it, uh, in some cases they could not give you an explanation. You know, they had to do what we preachers have to do sometimes when somebody says, well, what does this mean? And if we've got a lick of sense, what we will say is, if we don't know, we'll say, well, I don't know. I'm going to have to study on that. You know, I'm going to have to try to find out. Uh, There's no reason to be embarrassed because you don't know anything, but it's sheer stupidity to pretend that you do know something when you don't. But I've often thought how neat it would be you know, not have to do spend any time studying. Of course, I love to study, but but just think about how neat it would be. Just get up out of the chair and walk up here, and you know, and uh, the countdown nine, eight, seven, six, and all of a sudden the Lord starts speaking through me. Well, look, that that that's the gift these men will have, and they and the prophets were concerned with the whole life of Israel. By that. I mean, they were concerned with the political matters, the economical matters, the moral matters, the religious matters. Everything pertaining to the life of Israel, they had a part in that. Some people tell, you know, preachers today say, well, you ought not get involved in politics. You ought not ever say anything about politics. Well, let me tell you, whenever politics overlaps the matter of morality, and, and it does then we we are obligated to say something about it. 
And, and so here we find that these, these two men minister for, notice, 1,200 and what, 60 days. That's what, 42 months? Three and a half years. So although there's no absolute definite proof that the three and a half years will be the last three and a half years of the tribulation, I think that's the case. Notice verse 4. They're called the two olive trees and the two candlesticks. That goes back to Zechariah chapter number 4, verse 2 and 3, where in his vision he saw a candlestick, I'm reading now, a candlestick all of gold and a bowl on the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. Notice, and two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side thereof. Now, this candlestick here in the vision represented what? Witness, that is, the light of the Lord. And it was supplied by what? The two olive trees. So, you know, back at that time, Joshua was the high priest. Not the Joshua some of you might be thinking of, but Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel was the king during that time back then. And they are likened unto the two olive trees. But now these two witnesses are likened unto the two olive trees for the same reason, and that is because they are providing light. They're providing information, as it were, from the Lord. So just as God used them during the dark days of Israel, that is the prophets, to, to, to restore the ruins of Jerusalem, talking about Joshua and Zerubbabel now, He uses these two witnesses during the tribulation in order to testify against the Antichrist. Now notice not, not only that they're prophets, but they're powerful. Look at verse 5 and 6. And I'll just barely make mention of this. Notice they kill their adversaries with fire. They keep it from raining. They turn water into blood. And they send plagues upon the earth. You know, the really interesting part of that is the very last statement, as often as they will. It's like God saying, I'm going to leave that up to them. I'm going to leave it up to them as often as they will. They can send plagues upon the earth. So God empowers them to do these miracles. You know, most people would think that this is very unbecoming of a preacher. You expect us to believe that you're a preacher and you call fire down upon enemies and you destroyed all of those people out there with fire You're the one responsible for it not raining. You turned water into blood and you sent plagues upon people. You call yourself a man of God. You say that you represent the great God of love. Let me tell you, a person better be very careful about judging what a preacher should and shouldn't do. I've often thought about Nehemiah, and I've, I've, I've never, for one thing, I never had the guts to try what he did, you know. And in the second place, God never told me to do it where he plucked the beard out of their face. And But sometimes, sometimes God uses his messengers in ways 
that do not make any sense to other people. It's, uh, you hear people say, all we've got to do is stand up and preach a sermon about particular sins and what happens. we got people out here with placards marching up and down in front of us calling us haters and, and prejudice and all of that other garbage and what have you. Well, boy, I tell you, that's a whole lot better. What we're doing is a whole lot better and a whole lot easier on them than calling fire down and consuming them. That's what's going to happen during the tribulation. But that brings us to the next point, and that's the fact that they are persecuted. Now, now remember, these these two fellows are working miracles, and you would think, because you've heard people say, well, you expect us to believe without seeing In in other words, where's the evidence that you're really a representative of God? Where's the evidence that God really sent you? And they're able to work all of these miracles. You see, there are some people that regardless of what you do, they're not going to believe. They're not going to believe even if they do see. They see the power of God upon these men. It's very obvious that these men are empowered of God And remember, the miracles during the New Testament by the apostles, those miracles and the spiritual gifts were used for the purpose of authenticating their ministry. Whenever you talk about, for example, the speaking in tongues or other languages, that was a means that God used to authenticate the fact, these are my men, these are my messengers. And still, some people, regardless of how much evidence they have, Refuse to believe. And that's what happens here because these powerful prophets are then persecuted. Let's pick up in verse number 7 now. And when they shall have finished their testimony. That's an important phrase. When they finished. Not before. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and the kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer, that is, not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry... Now get this, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets, notice these two prophets that tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw it. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them in the same hour. There was a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God... Of heaven. Now notice here it says they finished their testimony. That tells us that their ministry was for a reason and for a season. In other words, they finished what God wanted them to do. Up until that point in time, these men were invincible. They were as safe as they could be in doing whatever they did. Nobody could have taken their life 
Like John the Baptist, a lot of people think about John the Baptist, you know, well, it's a shame that he died prematurely after all, had he been able to live longer, think of all of the great things he could have accomplished. No, he lived the exact length of time God wanted him to live. His ministry was over, and consequently God allowed that to happen. Reminds me of the story of a missionary to India many years ago, and someone asked him about the dangers of working with lepers, and here's what he replied, quote, Being in the will of God and working with lepers is far safer than being anywhere else out of the will of God. Being in the center of God's will is the safest place in the world, no matter the circumstances. Boy, I mean, that is exactly right. In the will of God, we are as safe as we could possibly be. Outside the will of God, there is no safe place. Outside the will of God, we are in great danger. You know, it's interesting to me that whenever we think about these men as they are killed, and, and they allow them to lay out there in the streets three and a half days, in Jerusalem, which he likens here to Sodom and to, to, to Egypt, not a very, not a very flattering description of the city, the place where the Lord was crucified. But notice what these people did. They would not allow them to be buried. They turned the occasion into a holiday and exchanged gifts and rejoiced. You know, that sounds almost exactly what some of the Muslims do. I read just today the description of something that a Muslim did. It's so vile and filthy, I could not in a mixed audience even even describe what this person did. And they take delight in things like that dismembering someone's body. I'm talking about after the dead, and they dismember the body publicly. And, and, and here we see that they are taking great delight in this thing. The interesting thing, it, it, it talks about the fact that the world looking upon this, you know, whenever I was a little boy, and by the way, by the way, there were a lot of critics of the Bible that pointed this out. How can all of the world look upon it? I'll never forget the day that I was with my mom, downtown Springfield, Missouri, on the square, hers department store, and I saw something I had never seen before. We went into that store, and there was a box that looked like it had people inside of it, and they were talking Well, yeah, you know, it's a a television. A what? A television. I'd never seen a television before. And I'll never remember Ricky and Diane Lindemar that lived down at the end of the street. They were the first ones in our neighborhood to get a television. And I walked in there and looked at that thing, and I just could not believe my eyes. Now, we live in a day and an age where... With ease, the whole world can watch something that is happening right here, right now, in real time. You see, God knew exactly what was going to happen. And so the whole world is watching, uh, but notice then the message from heaven. 
The message from heaven. This is the last section of this chapter. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly, and the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell down upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We will give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, Remember, I told you earlier, this chapter ends with, you know, what happens at the end and after the tribulation. Well, here it is. He's talking about the time when the dead of the unsaved, they're going to be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament, or the covenant, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake, and great hail. Here we see the announcement of the kingdom. Christ, at this present time, is taking out a people for his namesake. Acts chapter number 15 tells us that. The kingdom of God is now within us. The kingdom of God does exist upon the earth, but the kingdom of God, remember when Jesus said to his followers, you are in the world, but not of the world. The kingdom of God is within you, the Bible says. By that, it simply means that God's reign, God's rule over his people is now something that's taking place within us. At the present time, good and evil, right and wrong are allowed to exist. Side by side. Right? You remember in the parable of the tares, you know, where they talked about going out and, you know, and digging up the tares. He said, oh, just leave them alone. Leave them alone. You try to dig up the tares, you'll destroy some of the wheat. Just leave it alone. And so God allows the good and the bad to exist side by side for the moment. In other words, His subjects presently are not subdued by force but rather they are led by the Spirit, directed by the Word into His will. God doesn't make you do anything. But listen, in this final great day, when the, when the kingdom becomes literal here upon the earth, it talks about Jesus ruling from the throne of His father David, and talks about Him ruling with a rod of iron. And in that day, He's going to exercise His authority over the whole earth. And I mean, there'll not, listen, there'll not be any injustice in that day because King Jesus is going to be the one running the show. And we see here in verse 16 and 17 the adoration of the saints. But notice, while the saints are adoring the Lord, as it were, we see the anger of the nations in verse number 18. And it all ends with the ark being displayed. Remember, the tabernacle, a lot of times... A lot of times people don't understand why the tabernacle and the temple existed. The tabernacle and the temple existed to house the ark of God. 
The ark of God represented the presence of God among His people. And so the purpose of the temple and the purpose of the tabernacle was to provide a house, as it were, for that. That's why we read about the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies, that cloud where God gave visual evidence of His presence among His people. Well, in this verse here we see, verse 19, John is allowed to look into the heavenly temple where the Ark of the Covenant sits or exists. I don't even know how to describe it. What a what a what a glorious sight this must have been in the eyes of John. And every time I read something like this, I go back to what we talked about a few weeks ago, where when it seemed like that it was all over for him that you know, out there on the lonely Isle of Patmos, his ministry was over and everything. And I keep thinking about the fact he said, no, 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 you will yet testify of me. In other words, John, I'm showing you all of these things and I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell people what you saw. I mean, if that wouldn't put fire in your bones, I don't know what will. Now, listen, folks, you and I haven't seen anything like John did. We haven't participated like John has in measuring, as it were, the temple. God hasn't granted us those privileges. But we have the same information that John had right here. And this book ought to excite us. Just as it excited John, it ought to thrill our heart to know that we are a part of this kingdom that's going to rule and reign over the earth forever and ever. I know the world looks at you and as a Christian and thinks of you as a loser. Don't you kid yourself. You're more than conquerors through the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that suffer with Him shall also reign with him one of these days. Not just reign with him, but be a joint heir with him also. Let's stand together.